We're in Ezra chapter 8. You'd uh, like to open your Bibles there or navigate on your device. Ezra chapter 8 is our text. The topic, before setting out for Jerusalem, Ezra makes camp for three days by the river. The title of our message, living in a camp down by the river. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, the opportunity to sing songs of praise to you and to know that you receive them as praise, that you love us as your children, and I'm going to go so far as to say you look forward to it. Now, Lord, your word, it's how you communicate to us, tell us things that we need to know, uh, that you want us to know, but mostly reveal yourself in a really powerful and strong way. We sense and and understand your presence, uh, your grace and your mercy, your love, your acceptance, your forgiveness, all those things that that hopefully we'll never take for granted. I pray that we would rejoice, Lord, and listen uh, as you speak to us in that still, small voice of the Spirit. We thank you, we praise you, we do it in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. Tony Bennett left his heart in San Francisco, but if you're going there, be sure to wear flowers in your hair. Chicago, Chicago was Frank Sinatra's kind of town. Billy Joel is always in a New York state of mind. You can stand on the corner in Winslow, Arizona. We all do know the way to San Jose, so viva Las Vegas. China Grove, El Paso, Jackson, Woodstock, Lodi, Muskogee, Youngstown, Monterey, Albuquerque, and Kansas City all have songs So do lots of other cities, both here in the U.S. and abroad. Of course, you can listen to Johnny Cash sing, I've Been Everywhere. And uh, it's amazing that he can remember all of those cities. There are a few songs about Jerusalem. The one that comes to my mind was Daryl Mansfield's ballad, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Why Won't You Believe in Him? Don't you know, can't you see, your king is this man from Galilee? In the book of Psalms, there are 15 songs of ascent. They are Psalm 120 through 134. Since Jerusalem is elevated, you ascend as you approach it. These Psalms were sung by Jews as they ascended the road to Jerusalem to annually attend the three pilgrim festivals. In our chapter, Ezra and a group of Israelites are returning to Jerusalem after decades of exile in Babylon. Do we doubt that they sang the songs of ascent? One of them in particular, Psalm 121, reads in part like this, I will lift up my eyes to the hills, from whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. That pairs up nicely with Ezra 8.22, where we read, I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road, Because we had spoken to the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. Whether he was directly thinking about it or not, Ezra's words capture the spirit of Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. My help comes from the Lord. Where does our help come from? Well, it comes from the Lord. But if I'm honest, I sometimes, and maybe even often, Look to other sources and resources for my help, especially when I don't think the Lord is moving fast enough or in the direction that I like. The Lord as our help, that's going to be our theme as we read through chapter 8. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, since it comes from the Lord, you can seek his help. 
And number two, since it comes from the Lord, you will see his help. We're going to start in verses 21 through 23, seeking his help. I was thinking about this trip they took. I was remembering when I was doing international travel for missions a lot more, I was always paranoid about having my passport or my money stolen. I tried every secret belt and wallet and even undergarment on the market. Occasionally, I would forget to put daily spending money in my pocket, so when I had to pay for something, I'd have to practically get undressed in order to (laughs) find my money. It was so hidden, I couldn't even find it. Ezra was leading a second wave of returnees to Jerusalem. They were transporting silver and gold and precious articles we'll read about. Uh, It's hard to get an exact value on their cargo, but commentators put it at a million dollars, if not several million Their journey was four months long, traversing 900 miles through bandit territory. If I was in charge and the king of Persia offered an armed military escort, I'd say yes in a heartbeat, but in this case, I'd be wrong. And so in verse 21, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions." We're going to see in verse 15 that they were there for three days. It was devoted to spiritual preparation for their journey, uh, and that's always a good thing to do, and in their case, especially to fasting and prayer. uh, Attitudes regarding fasting are all over the place. Some folks talk about fasting as almost mystical, tapping into hidden spiritual power that gets uh, you to convince God to do whatever you want, practically. Others tout the health benefits of regular fasting, caring little about its potential spiritual impact. It's interesting, fasting is almost always, not always, but almost always in the Bible, coupled with prayer. I got to thinking about that. Bear with me while I try to develop a thought. I do a lot of cooking now. I'm not a good cook, but I cook. And I can honestly tell you I am the slowest cook on the planet. Uh, I get all my ingredients out and measured in little bowls. I set out all the pots and pans and utensils I'm going to use, and they all need to be arranged in order of use because I can't afford to miss a step. Uh, I've got the menu hanging on a, uh, you know, sh- I use a little hanger that you use for pay- pants, and, the gr- and, and I put the menu on that and put it on a handle. So I'm all set. My spices are prearranged alphabetically. I've got the ones I use the most on the right side, left side and the ones I don't use on the, on the right side, but they're all alphabetical, so I don't have to go looking for them. And then I clean up as I'm cooking, which further slows me down. And if somebody starts watching me cook, forget about it. It's all over. I just, I turn to jelly. Poor Pam, she says, I'm so hungry. I go, oh, we're, <laughs> we're close. I started at four and around six, 6.30, I'm ready to go. In Bible times, it took a long, long, long time to prepare a meal. Have you ever heard of or had something called Zarb? Anybody know what Zarb is? I'm surprised. It's an authentic Bedouin barbecue meal made in a deep pit. And if you go on different websites, it'll tell you that it takes five to six hours to prepare Zarb. But that doesn't include butchering the chicken or the pig or the cow. That has to be done ahead of time. 
You might remember an episode in the book of Genesis where Abraham is hanging out in the heat of the day by his tent and three strangers come along. It turns out to be the Lord and two angels who are going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham insists that they stop at his tent and that they share a meal together. And uh, so he goes and he tells his wife Sarah to start baking bread. And then he tells one of his young servants to go out into his herd and butcher an animal. And then they prepare it all. And it all has the effect of the, the poor angels can't get to Sodom until evening. So they start this at the heat of the day, and by the time they're done eating and hanging out with Abraham, they get to Sodom at night. And so it took a long time to prepare meals. We, we don't really think about that, because it usually doesn't take us that long to prepare a daily meal. Uh, I would guess, I know there's pre-preparation sometimes, but I would guess most of us are not spending six hours on dinner. Uh, and so why do I bring this up? Well, in Bible times, when you fasted, it literally freed up hours upon hours that would normally be spent cooking and eating. You fasted in order to pray, not as a discipline in and of itself. Now, as I said, there are cases of fasting without prayer in the Bible, and there's praying without fasting. But we, because we don't understand the culture, we don't think about it, we don't understand that when they said, hey, we're going to fast and pray, that meant that they had five hours to pray because they didn't have any food to prepare or to eat. And so I would suggest to those of you who fast, uh, as you, however you want to do it, that's fine, but you might also add to your repertoire, hey, I'm going to actually spend the time I would have spent cooking and eating praying because I freed myself up for that. Uh, So let's move on. Verse 22. I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road because we had spoken to the king saying, the hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. If they really believed that their help was from the Lord, an armed escort would be at best a poor testimony I mean, imagine if you were a Persian soldier assigned to that duty, a 900-mile journey one way, and then you had to come back, 1,800 miles, eight months of your life. At least by the third day, you were saying, yeah, these are the people whose God is going to protect them. It's a good thing we're here to protect them. I was going to go on vacation, but now I've got that put off eight months while I watch these people. Because people do that to us today, so that, that would have been a bad testimony. At worst, it would give some credit for their exodus to the power of Persia. A lot of times people say, oh, look what the Lord has done, and then others say, well, you mean the Lord and the Persian army because you didn't go without them. And so Ezra is very sensitive to this, and he decided that because of his uh, very real boast that God would protect them, that God would be their help, he would have to refuse this support. Later in this second temple story, when we get to Nehemiah, he's going to lead a third return to Jerusalem. He will take an escort, but for Ezra, it would have been sin. And so there are things in our Christian walk that are obviously sinful for all Christians, but then there are times in your life when you have to discern God's will and figure out if it's something he wants you to do or not do. And, and you look at these guys and say, well, Ezra, had, Ezra didn't take an escort, but Nehemiah did, so who was right? They were both right 
because they did what the Lord wanted them to do in their situation. And so in this case, he wanted to illustrate that he would be their help as they ascended to Jerusalem. And um, so he made the right choice. Verse 23, so we fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. They fasted to entreat God in prayer. We'll see the verses surrounding these, how God answered their prayer. These verses and Psalm 121 that I mentioned, they are for and about God's chosen people, Israel. We are not Israel, but they are for and about us too in that they reveal God's providence for all those he loves in any dispensation. So you have to be a little bit careful when you're, especially in the Old Testament, talking about Israel. Uh, you, you can't, actually you don't want to apply everything that God said to Israel to the church. Uh, but this is a situation where uh, it rises above any particular people group to just the people of God, where you say, well, is God, was, God Israel, was God Israel's help? You say, yes. Is God our help? Well, of course. And so we can glean from this some insight. And so God is your help always. The trouble is, his idea of help isn't always what we think it should be. We're the church. We live in the church age between the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and the resurrection and rapture of the church. A main characteristic of the church age for believers, if we're being honest, is suffering. Jesus promised his church age followers, in the world you will have tribulation. The apostle Paul wrote, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And he said in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, that's all of us here today who are Christians, will suffer persecution. Not might or won't, but we will. Because we who are in Christ are his body on the earth, in one sense, it's as if Jesus never left. People will treat you the way they treated Jesus. And, and that um, is in a sense of persecution. We can therefore expect to suffer many hardships just for being in Christ. And as well, we don't think about this too often, but we suffer the normal consequences of living in a world ruled by the God of this age who is Satan. We tend to think of non-believers as skipping through life. If you read the first part of Psalm 73, Asaph had this complaint, the wicked always prosper, they never get sick, they're happy in their death, people eulogize them. Uh, and it was an exaggeration. Your non-Christian friends get sick and they die. They have financial problems. They get into accidents. They contract cancers, those kinds of things. We live in a fallen world. And so whether you're a Christian or not, you're going to be subject to a lot of terrible, terrible things, accidents, injuries, diseases, and whatnot. And then we have a double whammy because as Christians, the devil is after us and he is going to see to it that we are mistreated. We are called often to endure our sufferings, to go through them with God's hand upon us. His help in this age is his abundant grace. And so we can say, my help comes from the Lord. And I think what we mean is he's going to take my disease away. He's going to keep me from that accident. He's going to, you know, do these things that are positive. And when that doesn't happen, we wonder what's going on. The help that comes from the Lord is grace. It is sufficient grace to live above your circumstances when necessary and give him testimony. 
And so wait on the Lord in your suffering. Don't concoct your own plan to alleviate or avoid it. Trust in the word, trust in prayer and in the fellowship of the saints. Remember that you have the comforter, God the Holy Spirit, living within you. It may be God will provide an escort, an army, like he did for Nehemiah in your trouble. It's more likely he wants you to be like Ezra and give testimony to his strength in your weakness. Now, in the remaining verses, since it comes from the Lord, you will see his help. When you need somebody's help, it's not just anybody's help. So you seek the Lord. And I'm saying, based on his promises, you will see it. Ezra did. And so let's return to verse 1. These are the heads of their father's houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylon in the reign of King Artaxerxes. And so have you, you've noticed in these Old Testament books we've been studying, Exodus and even Ezra, lots of attention is paid to genealogies. Israel was a tribal society. Many of the laws and customs that are strange to us are necessary to maintain tribal inheritances and tribal identities. In my, uh, through the Bible reading, probably some of you right now are in the book of Leviticus, if you're doing a, you know, straight through the Bible reading. Man, lots of weird stuff. Weird from the point of view of if we had to do that stuff. It just seems so odd. For example, in the church, if your brother dies childless, you don't go to his widow, to your sister-in-law, and have a child with his name. But in Israel, you did. It was necessary because it was a tribal society and they had to maintain inheritances and rights to land and those kinds of things. So I just throw that out there to remind us, uh, you know, again, everything that applies to Israel just doesn't apply to the church. The nature of God, the character of God, the workings of God, all of those, for sure, to God's people of any age. But believe me, you want to be thankful that a lot of the things that God had Israel do, we're not called upon to do. Uh, but it wasn't just, you know, because people scratch, why did this happen? Or why did they do this? Or whatever. Because they were preserving a tribal society. Why is that so important? <laughs> because you had to have a line for the Messiah to come through. When God promised in the Garden of Eden, I'm going to come through the seed of the woman, and then he established the nation of Israel, that had to be preserved. And so you, you, know, and you get into these tribal things that you wouldn't get into in a normal society. I think all Italians should marry Italians. I'm just joking, really. But that's not actually, you know, that's the kind of thing. That would be like, you know, what, what happens in, in Israel. Everything is so, you know, uh, regimented so that people don't lose their property. Although some of us listen to some of the year of Jubilee stuff. I could get into that. Houses that you sold reverted back to you. Debts were freed. That's why I like, to, I'm always joking with you, but it's kind of true with your Adventist friends. Ask them when the next year of Jubilee is because you're liable to borrow some money from them and then tell them that you don't need to pay it back. So, not really. Pastor Gene told me to borrow money. We're gonna skip reading the names in verses two through 14, so round of applause. Uh, by most calculations... Based on the numbers given in those verses for the men who returned, estimating the women and the little ones that were with them, the entire group would number about 5,000. And so uh, Zerubbabel had come back in the first wave with 50,000. This is a smaller group of 5,000. And so let's skip down to verse 15. Uh, those of you who are thinking, you know, Pastor Gene, you really should read through these. and You can do that later and record it and send it to me. 
And I'll, I'll listen to each one of them as a discipline. Uh, Ezra 8:15. now I gathered them by the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there three days. And I looked among the people and the priests and found none of the sons of Levi there. Now, it's implied that this return was voluntary. No one from the tribe of Levi had volunteered. We shouldn't speculate as to why. Uh, we're not told, and there are probably a myriad of reasons. Uh, maybe good reason. Since Ezra is going to the second temple to initiate reforms, he would need Levites who could perform services in the temple. And so in verse 16, then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jarib, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulalem, leaders, also for Jorib and Elnathan, men of understanding. And so all of these guys, uh, probably born around the same time when Elnathan and Nathan was a really popular boy name. Uh, kind of like, you know, what's the popular boy name right now? You, a few years ago, it was Joshua. Uh, now I don't know what, I don't even want to get into that. I'll, I'll offend somebody. I probably already have. But anyway, they read like a law firm to me, uh, the firm of L. Nathan, L. Nathan, Nathan, and L. Nathan. Is L. Nathan there? No. Is L. Nathan there? No. How about Nathan? No. L. Nathan? Speaking. Uh, and I gave them a command for, that's the oldest joke in the world, by the way. I gave them a command for Edo, the chief man at the palace of Casaphia, and I told them what they should say to Edo and his brethren, the Nethanim, at the place Casaphia, that they should bring us servants for the house of our God. Then by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, the name, uh, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and brothers, 18 men. And Hashabiah with him, Jes uh, Jeshiah, of the sons of Merari, his brothers and their sons, 20 men, also of the Nethanim, whom David and the leaders had appointed for the service of the Levites, 220 Nethanim, all of them were designated by name. In some cases, if there are no volunteers, then the work just doesn't get done. In the case of the Ezra Exodus, that was not going to be an option. Ezra needed these men, and so he organized the leadership and chose two guys to represent the situation to the Levites. Without coercing them, their pre-mission mission yielded a capable leader and 38 Levites and 220 Nethanim servants for the Levites. I would guess that it's usually better to volunteer on your own without being prompted, but sometimes you need the prompt because you don't know what there is to volunteer for. And so there's a balance in the church uh, between people who just step up and say, hey, is there something I can do? I feel you know, prompted to do something for the Lord. And us in the announcements or some other way saying, hey, this is what's going on and we could use some help. And um, the, the important thing is that there's no coercion. Now, or, Ezra, organized, in an organized, he went about it in an organized way. He said, the leadership is gonna go and these two guys who can communicate well are gonna lay out the case because we really do need some Levites uh, but, you know, he didn't threaten anybody. He didn't go and, you know, rebuke them and shame them. He just reinstituted the idea that, hey, you know, no Levites have, uh, maybe some Levites thought other Levites had uh, volunteered. We, we don't know. And so we want to follow that kind of a pattern and not coerce people into serving the Lord and then turning around and saying, see what the Lord has done. You know, if man does it, the Lord didn't do it. And a lot of church building projects are like this. I remember one church I heard about, 
that uh, they were low on funds, and so they said if, you know, it was, they tried to make a fun thing out of it, but it wasn't. It's like, hey, if you want to sit down, you need to buy your own chair. And so they had everybody donate $35 uh, to the chair fund. And then once they got all their chairs, they said, praise the Lord, look at what the Lord has done. Well, the Lord didn't do anything. Uh, the, you did it. You say, hey, look what I've done in my amazing fundraising capability by shaming people into buying their chair. I would have just brought my own folding chair. But that's just me. Verse 24. I separated 12 leaders of the priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their brethren with him. See, Ezra doesn't even want to read their names. But... <laughs> Well, yeah, these two guys and 10 other guys. I got too many names. He was over his name budget in chapter 8. So he weighed out to them the silver, the gold, the articles, the offering for the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his princes and all Israel who were present had offered. I weighed into their hands 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 gold basins worth 1,000 drachmas, and two vessels of fine polished bronze, precious as gold. I'd like to bring back the drachma. Doesn't that sound good? It, you know, go into the store and say, that'll be 10 drachmas. That sounds like more sexy and romantic than dollars. I don't know what a dollar is anyway. The whole money thing bothers me. Maybe if I had more, it wouldn't, but anyway. <laughs> we don't know how many millions of dollars that this stuff was worth. Uh, you know, scholars get into the weight and what the drachma was worth at that time, but it was a lot. It would make me nervous on a walk through treacherous territory. These guys stepped up and they said, we'll carry a portion of the fortune. And, and um, you know, I know it makes us targets, but we believe that God will be our help. Verse 28, and I said to them, you are holy to the Lord. The article's holy also. And the silver and the gold are a free will offering to the Lord God of your fathers. Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leaders of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel and Jerusalem in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites received the silver and the gold and the articles by weight to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Holy doesn't mean sinless, it means set apart. What I like in this section is that the people were holy to the Lord. They were precious to him. So there's a kind of a parallelism. It's like we would look at gold and silver and these objects as, as really precious and valuable. And God says, well, that's true on an earthly level, but on a heavenly level, the thing that's really precious to me are my people. And that, of course, applies to us as well. We are God's precious possession. And then we departed from the river of Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was upon us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambush along the road. If you're looking for a travel log, all you get is verse 31. Four months of camping and moving are totally skipped over, serving to emphasize that God made sure nothing happened along the way. Verse 32, so we came to Jerusalem. We stayed there three days, so they had a little time of rest before they got into their ministry. Now on the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the articles were weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah the priest, and with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites, Jazabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Binwi. Uh, with the number and the weight of everything, all the weight was written down at that time. Ezra is a guy for accurate numbers and for inventories. Ever had to take inventory at a place? 
my dad owned an auto parts store and we had to take inventory of nuts and bolts and you know so a after about 10 minutes you just start making things up <laughs> it's an encouragement though to not be sloppy in serving the lord so don't look in my office please <laughs> until i get a chance to burn it uh, verse 35 the children of those who had been carried away captive, who had come from the captivity, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and 12 male goats as a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. So they did what was prescribed by the law of Moses, and they were glad to do it, to offer sacrifices. But I'm glad, I'm gladder, if that's a word, that thanks to Jesus, the only thing we offer is ourselves as living sacrifices. I mean, the temple system was amazing in the sense that it allowed man to approach God and God's presence was uh, in the original tabernacle and, and it, it was symbolic and it was just a wonderful thing to be a part of, uh, but it's done. You understand, it's done with Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world the final sacrificial lamb. When he died, the moment he died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying that the way to God was open through Jesus Christ. Now, the Jews put the veil back up. They continued in that system of worship. They want to set it up again. We don't want to have any part in that. And so don't be drawn back into these Hebraistic ideas that you should be keeping festivals and feasts and, and you know we can learn about that and its symbolism and be grateful that you don't have to do any of those things because we have a friendship and a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. All of that is a step back. Any step into ritualism is a step back away from a relationship with Jesus Christ. Verse 36 they delivered the king's orders to the king's satraps and the governors in the region beyond the river. So they gave support to the people and to the house of God. This is the final item on this particular list to quote President Bush, mission accomplished. In the case of the returnees, you see them responding obediently to Ezra's call to fast and pray. You see them helped at the camp as God provides hundreds of Levites and Nephinim. You see individuals step up to carry the precious metals and objects. You see them arriving safely and soundly at their destination. And you see that they have favor among the Gentiles. For us, I think the most important lesson, the thing to see by faith is what you don't see. And that is the brevity of verse 31. Let's read it again. Then we departed from the river of Ahava. Ahava. I think I've pronounced that five different ways. So take your pick. On the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. It's like Gila Bend or uh, Arizona, right? Or Gila Bend. It's a Gila monster. Or maybe it's a Gila monster. No, anyway, Ahava. The hand of our God was upon us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambush along the road. They left for Jerusalem. They arrived at Jerusalem. In the meantime, God defeated any schemes of the enemy along their road. It wasn't worth mentioning. You who are in Christ are on a journey to the new Jerusalem, the city that will come down out of heaven, whose builder and maker is God. When you die or when you're raptured, you will arrive in the new Jerusalem. You started for it when you got saved, you're gonna get there. The trials and the afflictions and the sufferings we think so much about now on our journey 
won't be worth a mention. You know, people who say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God what business he had on October 12th doing that to me. No, you're not. Not because it's disrespectful, but because you won't even care what happened on October 12th uh, or any other day. It's just going to be, it's going to be like verse 31. I left for heaven. I'm in heaven. Satan, sin, death, even though defeated by Jesus at the cross and by his resurrection, they can ambush you in the church age. But as you set your affections on things above and remain heavenly minded, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We'll meet in the golden city in the new Jerusalem. All our pain, all our tears will be no more. We'll stand with the hosts of heaven and cry, holy is the lamb. We will worship and adore him evermore. Amen.